All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Daily Power Parsha. It's good to see everybody on this lovely afternoon, Friday afternoon. Uh, welcome Donna, welcome Sandrine, welcome Matt, welcome Stephanie, welcome back Stephanie, and welcome Ray. Okay, so it's great to study Torah together, and it's, uh, it's always good to close out the week with something inspiring, something timely, and I hope that, uh, that as we ex- start exploring today's conversation, that you will indeed find it uh, timely and inspiring. Both of those hopefully will transpire. So, I have open on my screen the Torah reading. I'm going to share the screen with you. Let's find it. There we go. Okay. And once again, Torah portion is Re'e. And... And then, and, um, if you notice, I have it pulled up to the beginning of the portion. Because I wanted to share with you something that I th- something that I think is very telling and very timely. So if you if you've uh, been taking notes, you you will have noticed that you will have noticed that uh, there's a lot of instances in this week's Torah portion and in general in Deuteronomy where the where Moshe Moses is warning the people about not falling into the trap of idolatry. And in this week's Torah portion, three times he uses a very interesting expression. And the expression that he uses, the expression that he uses is not to follow um, idols that your parents did not know. Let's find, let's find some instances in this week's Torah portion. You may have remembered it because we went through them. Uh, but let's take a look. Uh, hold on. Here. Take a look right at the beginning of the Torah portion. Okay, where Moshe says, Behold, I have set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you will heed the commandments, and the curse, verse 28, if you will not heed the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn away from the way that I command you this day to follow other gods, which you did not know. Right? That what's the problem? If the, and what, when does the curse happen? If you turn away from the way, the path of Torah, Mitzvot, the, power of Hashem, the path of Hashem, and instead you follow other gods which you did not know. What does that mean, which you did not know? The simple understanding is, which you have not known previously. In other words, these are new foreign gods, gods that you haven't known yet. Why is that germane? Why is that important? I mean, would, would it be okay if they, if they had known it before? What's, why, why is it emphasizing that, that you, you, you've never known these to be gods? Um, I'll give you another example. Let's do another example. Um, let's take a look at the third reading. Maybe we'll find one over here. Yeah. No. Um, yes. Take a look at this. This is regarding the false prophet that incites people to idol worship, which we said is a capital offense. So take a look. So you have somebody who rises up, a prophet, a dreamer, gives you a sign or a wonder, and it actually transpires. And so you're like, well, this, this dude is legit. This person's legit. And then he says, aha, the punchline, let us go after gods, which you have not known, which you have not known, and let us worship them. Why, again, why does the Torah mention that these are unknown gods? These are gods which you have not known. Why is that part of the narrative? 
Idolatry is idolatry, whether you knew about it before this guy introduced it or whether you didn't know about it. You understand my question? Why is the Torah emphasizing that, 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 that which you have not known? I want to share, and there's a third time in the Torah portion, but I, I, I think I've shown you enough. And here's the big idea. I want to share with you an insight that the Chassam Sofer, of Moshe Sofer, one of the uh, wonderful uh, um, Hasidic Torah commentaries of the last few centuries, something that he wrote on these very words. And he explained that very often, and this is something that happens to be a Jewish phenomenon, that very often we get caught up in something, not because it has content or value, not because it has any measure of truth, but simply because it's new. Simply because it's something that we have never seen before, and because of that very fact that it's unknown, that itself grants it the allure and the mystique. Are you with me? So why is it that we're seeking this Mishagas, that Mishagas, the other Mishagas? Why? Not because it has any more value than, than, than tried and tested Torah, Judaism, worship of Hashem. No, it's only because it's a revolution. Only because it's something new. It's something exciting. It's something shiny. And something we've never seen before. And this becomes a cautionary note. Moshe said, Moses says to us, do not follow idols which you have not known. Trust me, you're also not allowed to follow, follow idols that you have heard about either. But what's his point? That don't follow the idols just because you haven't heard of them. And just because you're thinking, well, it's the new kid on the block. Maybe I should try it out. It's the new idol on the block. Let's give it a whirl. That's not a good enough reason to abandon God and to run after idolatry. Look, you know, uh, Madison Avenue, which is the, the line for marketing, right? The, the address for marketing. Madison Avenue knows this, that when it presents something as just the same as before, no one buys it. Or, you know, but if it presents something as brand new, then people are excited. People, people perk up. People start paying attention. That's why every year around September, this year it's going to be October, don't ask how I know, um, every year Apple, like Apple, the billion dollar company Apple, gets up or a rep from Apple or reps from Apple get up on stage and they launch the new iPhone or the new iPad or the new iMac or the new this, that or the other, right? Why do they launch the new one? Because if they just launched the old one, or they didn't launch the old one, they just, you know, yeah, it's basically the same thing. No one would buy it. So what do they do? They tell you that it's new. Now, you didn't even know that you needed something new because it was working fine. But now that they told you that there's something new, it's like, well, now I have to have it because I don't want the old one, I want the new thing. See, new has an allure. And aside from the details of what's new, the fact that someone's calling it new, that itself is enticing. For the Jew... Jews have always been excited. I, 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 I'm sure everyone is, but we can, we can look at Jewish history and see how Jews historically have been excited about things that are new, about revolutions, <laughs> whether it was other religions, whether it was idolatry in, this, in these times, in, in those time, the biblical times, whether it was communism, uh, Stalinism, right? Jews followed the new. Jews have followed the revolutions. And the Torah's message to us is, do not serve the idols that you don't know. In other words, don't serve the idols. Don't drop, 
truth. Don't drop that which is meaningful, that which is time-tested, just because something flashy or shiny is, uh, is on the radar. That's not a good enough reason to abandon God. Does that make sense? Okay, so for us in our lives, what does it mean? Avoid the temptation for the new stuff. I'm not saying don't buy the new iPhone. If you need it, if you want it, knock yourself out. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. What I'm saying is, though, when there's a whim or a fad in the world, a movement of this, that, or the other, that takes, if it's a neutral movement, fine, but if it takes away, if it compromises our Judaism, we have to be strong to resist. That's indeed the Torah's message three times in this week's Torah portion. Okay, that's a little bit about stuff that we've, we read through, but I wanted to make sure to emphasize because I think, to me, that's a powerful idea. Now we're up to the fifth reading. So why the fifth reading, which is for Thursday? Because yesterday we didn't really jump into it too much inside. So today we're going to review the fifth, sixth, and seventh readings, and we'll get ready for Shabbat. So we begin the fifth reading with the mitzvah of giving the tithe, which is giving 10% of the crops that grow in the field. This is a biblical commandment for farmers that each year they give a tenth of the crop to a good cause. Okay? And which is specified in Torah, by the way, what that good cause is. It's basically giving it to the Levite. Remember the Levite, the tribe of Levi. Um, Mark, you're a Levite. Look at you getting a tenth of everybody's food. Unbelievable. Nine apples for me and one for Mark. Thank you very much. Anyway, um, the Levites, as you recall, didn't have a day job. They were, they were employed by the temple to serve the people. Not employed. I mean, they worked for God. They were the God squad. So as the God squad, you know, they needed, they needed some support. So who supported them? The people, the farmers, who gave a tenth every year to, of, of their annual crops to the Levites. Take a look. You shall tithe, back, uh, let's jump inside verse 22. You shall tithe all the seed crop that the field gives forth year by year. So it's not a tenth in the lifetime of the field. It's tenth on an annual basis when the harvest comes in. Very important. The Hebrew words of tithing is aser. To aser, I just highlighted in the Hebrew side, aser to aser. Eser means 10. Aser to aser means tithe, you shall tithe. And our sages in the Talmud have imagined it in a bit of a different way. You know the sin, this letter right here, not sin like in English, but the letter sin could also be a letter shin if the dot is on the other side in the Torah. We don't have the vowel dots, so you could read it really a little bit differently, which indeed our sages do to bring out a homiletical interpretation. They say, aser to aser, read it, aser to asher, not to aser. Aser, tithe, and then you'll become to asher, which means you'll become rich. Ashirut means, asher means a rich person. Aser to asher, aser to aser, the way it's written, vowelized here, means tithe, you shall tithe. And I was, make sure to do it. Aser to asher means tithe, and the reward is you will become wealthy. And the understanding is that when we give tzedakah, when we give not only in ancient times, when we help support the Levites, but in today's times, when we help support individuals in needs and good causes that are in need of support, that is a ticket to God's blessing. That's an opening for God's blessing of wealth and success. We think that when we give away, we're losing. That's based on logic. <laughs> but the Torah tells us something beyond logic, right? If you, if you have 100 and you give away 10, you have 90. Well, that's a loss. Not according to Torah. According to Torah, when you give, 
you get more than you give. So it's not, yeah, knocking down to 90 temporarily, but the, uh, the gain is going to be much more than that. In fact, the Talmud says that God says, Aser to Asher, tithe and, and, and hold me to account for it. In other words, try me out. Typically, we should do a mitzvah for the right reasons. With this mitzvah, God says, give in order to become wealthy. In other words, test me. Try me out and I'll deliver. That's God's promise as, uh, as articulated in the Torah and as explained in the Talmud. Now, here is the way it works. There's a seven-year cycle, seven-year sabbatical cycle. Every seventh year, you don't even own your field. I mean, legally, I guess you own the land, but for all intents and purposes, you don't have any um, ownership rights over the field. You can't plow it, you can't sow it, you can't, you can't work it, you can't prune it, you can't cut it. It's available for everybody, and it's not specifically yours. Every seventh year. So that means the six years you work your field, the seventh year you let it go. The six-year cycle, it's kind of like six days a week and then Shabbat, but in, in, in a yearly basis. The six years are divided into two segments of three. And let me explain. The first two years, and then the third year, and then the next two years, and it's third year. So years one and two, and then three, and then four and five, and then six. Each one has a bit of a different rule, and I'll explain in a moment exactly what that is. There were actually two tithes that were given or taken. So the first tithe always went to the Levite, 10% to the Levite. Of the remaining, you took another 10%. This is called Meiser Sheni, the second tithe. What was the second tithe? What was done with the second tithe? I'm glad you asked. Second tithe was actually taken by the farmer, the, the produce. That next 10 second 10% was taken by the farmer to Jerusalem to enjoy himself. But go to Jerusalem. And this is what we have over here. Um, and you shall eat before the, uh, right here. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place he chooses to establish his name therein, Jerusalem. The tithes of your grain, your wine, your oil, the firstborn of your cattle and of your sheep, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God all the days. This was basically a way to guarantee that people would go to Jerusalem and kind of hang out there for a little bit, right? Support the local economy, but more than that, hang around the temple. So here you have a farmer, and here you have built into the Jewish system a way that the farmer should become, can, should remain connected with the spiritual source. Are you with me on this, on the, on the beautiful strategy here? You tell a farmer. Now, a farmer could get lost in the field. When I say lost, I don't mean that. What I mean is a farmer could just say, I'm a farmer, I'm not a scholar, I'm not a, a priest, I'm not a Levite, I don't work in the temple, I don't go to the temple, I'm, I'm, I'm on the farm, I make the food and send it out, and that's it. Torah law says, no, every year you're going to give 10% to the Levite, and then 10% you're going to eat, but you're going to have to eat it in Jerusalem. You have to go to the temple in Jerusalem, and you have to eat it there. Wow, that's a great way to guarantee that even the farmer, when I say even the farmer, even someone who might think, nah, the temple's not for me. I have my overalls on. I, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in the field. Even the field involver person needs to go to Jerusalem and, 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 and learn and imbibe and, and, and um, imbibe, maybe that's the wrong word, <laughs> not drink, and, um, and absorb the holiness of the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, what happens if, um, if you have too much stuff to carry to Jerusalem? Imagine you have a big field or many fields. You have to schlep all the produce. How are you going to do it? And if the way be too long for you, that you aren't able to carry it, all your produce, the 10% that you're going to eat, um, 
okay, then, okay, let's skip that. Then 25, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand, and then you shall go to the place the Lord your God will choose. In other words, if you can't schlep all your, the 10% of your produce that you need to eat in Jerusalem, it's too much, so then sell it, take the cash, go to Jerusalem, and spend the money there on more food. You with me? You exchange the food into cash, and then use the cash to, uh, to buy food in Jerusalem. And you shall turn that money into whatever your soul desires, cattle, sheep, new wine, or old wine, or whatever your soul desires, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Basically, again, it just, it's a guaranteed pilgrimage, making sure that everybody remains plugged into the spiritual center. Even the person who says, no, I'm just a simple farmer. No, I'm a person who works the land. I don't have vacation time. It doesn't matter. Jewish law, Torah law says, you gotta go to Jerusalem. Take the food or take the cash and buy food and eat there and enjoy, rejoice, but you're also going to connect. Guaranteed, when you're there every year on an annual basis, you will connect. Um, now that happens the first, second, fourth, and fifth years of the cycle. Again, year one and two and four and five, the second tithe goes to the farmer and the family. Years three and six, the second tithe goes to the poor. So the first tithe is always going to the Levite. Tithe number one, the first 10% always goes to Mark. The second 10%, right? The second 10%, four out of the six years, you enjoy in Jerusalem. Two out of the six years, specifically years number three and number six, you give to the poor. Okay. Uh, that doesn't mean the only time we, we support the poor and give tzedakah and give food to people is in the third and sixth year of the sabbatical cycle, back in the day. But it means specifically the second tithe was allocated on top of everything else to the, to the poor. Now, this brings us to the, today's reading, reading number six, which talks about the sabbatical year, Shemitah. At the end of seven years, you will make a release. Shemitah, which means which, Shemitah, which is called the sabbatical year, literally means a release. And this is the manner of the release. Not only is your land ownership, farm ownership released to a certain extent, but also loans. So this is the manner of release. To release the hand of every creditor from that, from what he lent his friend, he shall not exact from his friend or his brother because time of the release for the Lord has arrived. If you have an outstanding loan and the sabbatical year hits, you have to let go. The Torah says, let go of the loan, let go of the obligation, or let go of the, of the note that the other person that you have over the other person, let it go. Now, there is a way around it. When I say a right way around it, there is something called the prusbal, which is uh, a legal document that, that rearranges it. Not, it's not a loan. It's um, <coughs> basically restructures it out of a loan to another form of financial arrangement, which then is okay to collect on. But again, if it's, if it's straight up a loan, then it's released in the sabbatical year. Um, take a look at the next. Here we go. Number seven. If there will be a, among you a needy person. Now, this is what we mentioned Wednesday night in the Torah studies class. But if there will be among you a needy person from one of your brothers in one of your cities, in the land that God is giving you. So take a look. You shall not harden your heart and you shall not close your hand from your needy brother. Rather, you should open your hand to him and you shall lend him sufficient for his needs what he, which he is lacking. In other words, 
When it comes to the poor and the impoverished, don't wait till, till years three and six, like I mentioned before, but rather help them out at any time. And even if it's close to the seventh year, you should give a person money alone. Beware, lest there be in your heart an unfaithful thought, saying the seventh year, the year of release has approached, and you will, be, and you will begrudge your needy brother and not give him, and he will cry out to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin to you. Rather, you shall surely give him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. For because of this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your endeavors. In other words, if you're thinking, well, the seventh year is approaching, and when the seventh year comes, that fellow does not owe me anymore. So he wants now $500. If I give him $500 loan, and the payment is 30 days, well, in 30 days, seventh year comes, and I'm out $500, the Torah says, lend it to him anyway. Stop thinking. Stop overthinking. I, what's going to happen? I'm going to lose the money. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Are you in charge? Is he in charge or is God in charge? If God's in charge... Listen, let's, let's, let me talk openly for a second. It's either real or it's not real. That's it. You have two options. You and I have two options. Either God's legit or not, God forbid. Right? That's, it's either real or it's not real. So if it's real, we're going all the way. If it's real, which, by the way, is the Torah's premise, right? And the premise of these classes. So if God is real and God's in control and God says, give and I'll hook you up, guess what? Give and God will hook you up. Nothing to worry about. If you're like, well, maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure. Listen, that's not, that's not, that's not Deuteronomy. That's not, uh, that's not where we are right here with chapter uh, 15. Deuteronomy 15 is like, got to go all in. Got to go all in. God's got you. Yeah. Is there a time frame when we might see the, you know, the... Uh... I, I don't know. You know, who? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> the short answer is, you know, what are the terms that we can set with God? 30 days, God. You know, listen, I, I, we, need, we need the cash. Look, I don't know that we can... Um, that we can... That we can know such a thing. But that's what God says. God says, I got you. I got you. You're not, you're not going to, this is not going to mess you up. It's not going to hurt you. I, I, I will, I'll take care of it. Listen, I, I want to speak the opposite, right? Let's go the opposite extreme. Person holds on to every single penny, right? Holds on to everything, doesn't let go, doesn't help out, etc. Are they guaranteed not to spend money on, on, on things that they would rather not spend money on? Including, you know, the car breaks down. Right? God forbid. I'm just saying, you know, car repair and appliance repair and a leak and a this and a roof and a gutter and a medical bill here. And we can't, there, there is, look, I think the, 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 the era of people thinking, of us thinking we're in control, that should have been out the window uh, middle of March, right? We are not in control. There is zero reason to believe anymore, certainly, that human beings are in control or, or can control things or know what's going to happen tomorrow. There's no way. So which means that our calculations of if I give, I'm going to have less, therefore I'm going to hold on to it. How do you know? None of that is certain. None of that is certain. All of that is a massive assumption, right? If I give, I'll have less. So I'll hold on to it and I won't give and I'll have more. How do you know? Hold on to it. Yeah. Next thing you know, you have a bill that you weren't expecting. You have it or you don't have it. No, no, no. I control all my bills. If, you, if, if anybody can tell me how to make sure that there's no surprises and bills, sign me up for that program. I'm on for that one. Life always brings surprises. 
God's in control, right? That's what we believe. God's in control. So God says, give and you are not, you're not going to lose out. No, but I know if I give, I'll have less. Don't worry. Don't worry. You'll have less expenses. You'll have bonus come your way. How and when? God will figure it out. We have nothing to worry about. So when is it going to happen? I don't know. Maybe it already happened. <laughs> Maybe it already happened. Maybe there would have been a loss. There would have been a, a, a big chayv, a big obligation that didn't happen because we don't know how everything works out. Right? That close call could have gone the other way. God forbid. Who knows? Okay. So that's regarding the sabbatical year, which affects the field, the loans, and God says, don't let it affect your giving. Be generous. Um, now we talk, oh, this is, um, I'm going to just quickly paraphrase, uh, uh, just summarize this, and then we're going to move on to the seventh reading and close it out. We talk here about um, slavery. Slavery. Which seems like a very not Jewish topic. But here's what you need to know. We're talking here about a person who is so in debt that the only way they can pay, the, they, they can get out of debt is by working for someone as, I don't know if it's, a, it's, not, the, it's not slavery as we know the term slavery. It's essentially, natured servant or like a live in hell, whatever it is. It's, it's like a different type of, but it means, a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a consistent, consistent work for somebody to earn the money and then get out of it. The Torah puts a max, once again, for six years. Six years, max, seventh year, it's, the person's done. Whether a man or a woman, it, it, it's, it's finished. And when they leave, you have to give them wonderful gifts and, 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 and wealth. You give them, you, you give them good, uh, a good send-off package. Um, oh, and by the way, we know in Jewish law, this servant, right, you has to, ha has to live... On your standard of living, same type of bed, eating the same food, not a second-rate inferior situation. If you have one pillow, it goes to that person. So Jewish law is very, very um, careful about um, taking care of this person so that it's not slavery. We know what slavery is. You don't have to tell the Jewish people back then what slavery was. They knew what they were. They were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt, right? So this is not slavery. This is something else. And the point is, as the Torah discusses this, it presents a scenario that's the anti-slavery slavery. Right? It's the type of slavery that's not at all slavery. It's not at all. There's no abuse. God forbid you touch the slave and the slave goes free. I touch them and, and, and this whole thing is done. Anyway, so that's a little bit about that. You should know we're doing a Tuesday night course now called the Jewish Course of Why. And one of the questions... In that, uh, in that course, which we may get to this week, I think we get to it this week, is why does the Torah allow for slavery? And we'll explain along the lines of what I just said and, and elaborate even more about the true understanding of what servitude was um, in the Torah's perspective. Okay, uh, seventh reading, which is the final reading for this Torah portion, talks about, once again, we alluded to it before, the firstborn of the cattle and the flock, should be dedicated to God, and it's eaten before the Lord your God year by year in Jerusalem by you and your household. Okay, fine. And then we have a discussion about the holidays. Deuteronomy chapter 16 takes us around the year uh, with the Jewish holidays. We start with Passover, right? 
Then we continue with, we got matzah, still Passover. Okay, then we count seven weeks. This is the counting of the Omer. After which you have the festivals of weeks, the festival of weeks, which is Shavuot, the anniversary of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And then you have Sukkot, right? The Sukkot holiday, the, the hut holiday, which is coming up. And that's it. Those are the three pilgrimage holidays, the three holidays that people would go to Jerusalem and, and hang out. So it's kind of like related to what we said before about the farmer taking the produce on an annual basis. And even in Jerusalem, there were other opportunities for people to make a pilgrimage, even if you didn't live in Jerusalem. But to go to Jerusalem, it was for the holidays. So, and here, let's summarize it in verse 16. Three times a year, every one of your males shall appear before the Lord your God um, in the place he will choose. By the way, why all your males? It could be anyone, but it's an obligation on the men folk. Understanding is the women and children might not be able to travel necessarily, uh, so the obligation was, was the obligation was only on the males. Um, they should go before the Lord in the place he will choose, a.k.a. Jerusalem, to the temple. On the festival, here's the three times. Number one, festival of Matzot, Passover. Number two, the festival of weeks, Shavuot. And number three, the festival of Sukkot. That's it. Three and... Th- th- it's called Shalash Regalim, the three pilgrimage holidays. Um, don't and don't appear before the Lord empty-handed. Make sure to bring an offering <laughs> when you when you come, right? Like your mother says, when you visit, don't forget to bring a gift. Every man shall bring as much as he can afford according to the blessing of the, of the Lord your God, which He has given you. And this ends the Torah portion. So I'm going to stop sharing and let's recap some of the ideas we spoke about: um, unknown idols. And simply it means that, you know, don't serve a foreign idol. But we said it means even more than that. The Chassam Sofer explains that it means don't serve something just because it's foreign, just because it's new. Oh, it's novel. Maybe there's something to it. Don't run after the shiny object, number one. We also spoke about, you expect me to remember what we spoke about. We spoke about the, uh, the Meister, the tithing. Aser asher, tithe and be rich. It sounds like a good title for a book, right? Tithing, the secret to wealth. And we said that God says, try me out, I'll deliver. We spoke about the different forms of tithe. There's the Meiser Rishon, the first tithe, always goes to the Levite. The second tithe, in years one, two, four, and five, are eaten by the farmer and the family in Jerusalem, or the cash equivalent in buying more food in Jerusalem. Third and sixth year, that second tithe is given to the poor. Seventh year, it's not, it's not yours to tithe. It's, it's everybody's. Seventh year also released, released debts, which might lend one to think, well, I'm not going to lend money before the seventh year. That sounds reckless. To which God says, no, you got to help out. You got to help out a brother or a sister. And even if you think, well, then I'm going to lose the money. Who's in control? Right. Who's your God? Who's in control? I'm in control, God says. I got this. Don't worry. I got this. Give. He won't pay you back. But don't worry, you have someone that has way more resources than a human being of flesh and blood, and that would be God. So um, we do that. We spoke about the idea of servitude and how that's only, again, sixth year, seventh year, the servant goes free. I mentioned that the laws of Jewish servitude have it, that it's not even even close to what you and I think of and and, and know about slavery in in the abhorrent sense. It's basically somebody working, you know, a live-in help, and, uh, and they get paid so that they can get back on their feet. So the Torah cautions us to not have that arrangement more than six years 
Because live-in help at the end of the day means that that person does not have, is not spending time with their own family. And that's essentially holding them back from building their life. So that's really the intent. The intent is not to allow slavery. The intent is that even if somebody needs a, a full-time live-in job, not more than six years. That's the intent of the Torah. And to understand the moral obligations of the one who's hiring that person to make sure they're taken care of. And it doesn't slip into, you know. And by the way, I'm, I, I think it's in a Rashi, which we skipped over, that Rashi says, either here or elsewhere in Torah, where it talks about this topic, that you cannot give this person um, useless work. For example, don't say, warm up this water for me, with the, and you don't have intention of drinking it. But just because you want to kind of yeah, execute power, like I can tell this person what to do and they're going to they're gonna do it, so I'm going to tell them to do something even though I don't need it. That's wrong and that's immoral. And the Torah says, don't do it. So again, we have a moral, a high moral standard when it comes to this type of, uh, of arrangement. And it's not at all like the horrific arrangement that we've gotten rid of and that we can't even imagine. And we would be shocked to find out to hear that the Torah even considers such a thing. And the answer is no, the Torah does not consider such a thing. It's a different thing. And finally, we, had, we took a tour, the pilgrimage holidays, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And we learned how we're supposed to go to Jerusalem and not be empty-handed. Bring something, bring a gift, bring a gift for God. All right, that's it for today. You and I, let's bring our gifts to God this Shabbat. Let's bring something into Shabbat. Bring an idea, an emotion, a feeling, and a Torah thought into Shabbat to make it that much more beautiful. Tonight, um, oh, we should make this a custom. We should talk about candle lighting. That would be a nice thing. Candlelighting tonight is, I'm going to pull up my calendar, my trusty calendar. Let's discover. 808. Look at that. 808 is candlelighting. So light your candles, your Shabbat candles before 808. Um, light it, say the blessing, welcome in Shabbat. And my advice, this is my advice, turn off the devices. And... Breathe. It's so therapeutic. I love one of the favorite, like literally, most favorite, one of the most favorite times in my day, no, in my, I don't know, week, is right before candle lighting. Power down the phone, and I know that we're done. 25 hours, that's it. So if you're not ready for the whole 25 hours, as long as you're ready for it. But it's like a thing. People pay money to go on, this, uh, on these retreats. So who, who needs to pay money? <laughs> what, a, what a waste of money. Shabbat. How much does Shabbat cost? It doesn't cost anything, right? I mean, you get food. Food is good. And that costs. But, you know, aside from that. But not for the Levite. Levite, Levite gets, uh, gets uh, the 10%. All right. So everyone bring your food over to Mark's house and <laughs> call, it a, call it a day. Yes, Ray, go ahead. Isn't it so that the slave doesn't have to leave if he doesn't want to leave? If the slave... Something with the ear? Yeah, yeah. So I, I fast forward through that. If the slave does not want to leave, we tell the slave, why? You're supposed to... You're meant to, to stand... Get it back on your own two feet. You're meant to have your own, your own family, your own household. What's, what's the deal? Don't be so dependent. He says, no, no, no. I want to stay. So then we, we pierce the ear. I don't know if they put an earring, but they pierce the ear as an indication that the ear that heard God say, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, that ear should not be wanting to stay in a situation of working for someone else on that level. As a temporary arrangement, I mean, we make it as good as possible, but as a, as a permanent deal, 
That's not cool. But what, but what happens if somebody says, no, I want to stay in it? I, I, you can't force them out. But you do a little, a little ear piercing to, uh, to indicate that the per- that's what it says, to indicate that the, the pers- you should be, we should be hearing better. And God says, no. God said, don't. By the way, is, this is true even in, in general labor law, Jewish labor law. A person is never obligated to work. Even if a person made a commitment, they made a contract, not obligated to work. Now, they don't have to get paid if they don't work. You don't have to pay them if they're not working. But no one is ever forced, according to Jewish law, to do work if they choose not to. That's it. I just thought that would be um, relevant to the conversation. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I, th- I, th- I thought I'd mention that. In other words, if you have a project and you hire someone for the day and whatever it is, they can walk off the job. You can't sue them, right? I mean, oh, maybe could you sue them? Uh, I don't know. Not but, performance, yeah. Huh? Yeah, no, I'm saying in Jewish law. I don't mean in, in American law. I mean, I, don't, I mean, in Jewish law, you can't... For, uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe there's other... It's not treating the employer nicely, like, you know, just... Correct. Yeah, yeah, correct. That's not nice, correct. But the flip side is, if a person says, for whatever reason, they don't want to work, they can't be forced That's to do the work. They can't be forced to do work, any work, right? You can't force another human being to do work. Even if they promised, even if there's a contract, you can't force the work. You can not pay them. Maybe you could also sue them for, you know, like you lost a day in the project, whatever it is. But you can't force work because there's no slavery in Judaism. If you, if you could force someone to do work, that's slavery. And that's not cool. That's not kosher. Anyway, just a related topic. Jewish labor law is very sensitive to, um, to anything that smacks of slavery. All right, that's it. So let's go into Shabbat free and spiritual and take our blessings, take our gifts, take our knowledge, take our feelings into Shabbat and make it a beautiful day. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Don't forget Candlelighting 808. We'll see you all next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. See you. Shabbos, everybody. Bye.